Hey, have you ever wondered what makes Shrewsbury such a great town? I think about it all the time. That's why I decided to create the Shrewsbury Biscuit Podcast, a place where we can sit and talk to people from all walks of life, listen to stories about what makes this town such a great place to live. We are going to be talking to authors and historians, artists and musicians, entrepreneurs, and people that have got great stories to tell about this town. Welcome to the Shrewsbury Biscuit Podcast. So hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to episode number one of the Shrewsbury Biscuit. This is a show designed to capture the essence of what makes uh, Shrewsbury really special. Uh, I've got to explain first, um, my name's Alex Whiteley, I'm your host, I'm going to be here every week in your ears, uh, and I am not from Shrewsbury, I've, I came here about 18 months ago, I've kind of lived here, there and everywhere, um, and I, I fell hard in love with the town, uh, and I, I really wanted to understand what is so special about this town, because I really do love this place, and I can't imagine myself living anywhere else. So my mission is going to be to interview people from the town and get them to explain to me what's special about Shrewsbury. Uh, we're going to be talking to all sorts of people. We've got authors and musicians, uh, entrepreneurs coming in, um, artists, all kinds of people from all walks of life. You know, uh, they're going to come in and speak to me and tell me, you know, wh- why why this place is so special, and give them guys a bit of a, a platform to to talk about what they do, uh, even if it's a, a great story about the town they've got, you know, uh, whether we, we promote the town or whatever it is you do in the town, this is what this show is going to be about. And today um, is our first guest on the show is Simon Bell, who's a local author. How's it going, Simon? You okay? Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Um, I, <laughs> I appreciate you had to drive around quite a bit to try and find where we are. Um, it's quite awkward, isn't it? These side streets of Shrewsbury that don't exist on a map. <laughs> <laughs> we get it all the time. I mean, we I had a, a Amazon guy ranting and raving at me the other day. He's like, I've been looking for your house for 30 minutes. <laughs> he was a bit frustrated. You know, Amazon guys are, are, are time... Um, the time constrained anyway um so yeah it, it it is quite frustrating um so simon um tell us a bit about yourself what what, what is it that brings you here today yeah. uh, i'm i'm a sort of mixed package really i'm i have the luxury of being a moderately young man not too young but <laughs> but uh, to have been able to retire early from my previous career so for many many years i was a mental health nurse some 35 years oh that's interesting uh, Prior to that, I did a couple of years of, of proper nursing, general nursing, but I was no good at that. So I fell into mental health nursing, which I absolutely loved. And that was my career up until the age of 55. And I worked in a various branches of, of that sphere of healthcare, from uh, hospital environments through to the community, through to sort of 22 years of dealing with suspects, defendants, offenders, people who came to the attention of the police and the courts and <coughs> probation, prison service, whenever there were concerns that they may have mental health problems. So that was career-wise, in a small nutshell, what I did. Um, who am I beyond that? I'm a husband. I'm a dad. Um, I'm a Salopian, not by birth. Uh, my parents moved here when I was a young child, so uh, I'm an, ad- an adopted Salopian. Um, and this is my hometown. It's where I've lived for the vast majority of my life. And as you mentioned, I'm an author. Um, <clears throat> yeah, 
Uh, and what is it that you that you write? Um, you, we spoke before about the books that you've, you've got out at the moment. What is it you like to write? Well, I've written um, two books only in my name and one as, as a co-authored book. My interest, and this stems back from my early nursing career, my early mental health nursing career, is the Holocaust and genocide and looking at um, intolerance and hatred and how damaging and potentially harmful that can be. Um so I've written one book specifically on the Holocaust, and I guess we might come back to that a bit later on. I've written another book that looks at tribalism, prejudice, the rise of the far right, and the, the politics of hatred, not just in this country, but worldwide, and what can be done to challenge that. And then I've co-authored a book, um, more of a booklet, really, a sort of manual of tolerance is how we've described it, and that's uh, co-written with a man called Reiner Hurst who is the grandson of Rudolf Hurst, who was the main commandant of Auschwitz-Birkenau, so the man responsible for the worst killing factory in history, oh, the wow. worst genocide in history. Oh, Reiner and I are close friends. We've known each other for a few years, and um, he commendably uh, deals with the legacy of his family history by working today to challenge hate, to make sure that the lessons of the past are remembered, and that we try and do something to... to speak up for the oppressed and the vulnerable and those that that's really others good in society that's really good especially today when we're kind of yeah we're kind of teetering on the edge of uh, what's right and what's wrong especially with the inclusion of sort of social media where people can tend to kind of get away with writing things and just disappearing these trolls that can come in and be like you're this and you're that and i hate you and they, they do and I, I, i'm a i'm a i'm an experienced podcaster who works very well with uh, social media and i see it a lot on a daily basis do you think that's an issue Social media is very powerful. If you look at um, the politics of the past, if you look at, say, the Nazi era uh, and you know, the rise of fascism in Italy and then in Spain, they relied on rallies, they relied on newspapers, they relied on, on the radio and on... Uh, and the movement. Uh, yeah, yeah. Today, the rallies are via social media. They're via Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat where people can share information fairly readily and they don't need to be in a crowd. You don't need to make yourself known you can do it anonymously um and you can reach tens of thousands or even millions of people just by posting whatever yeah. you want to post we've, and the algorithms of of social yeah media, we've all seen that spider chart where yeah, it kind yeah. of yeah they, they those posts will reach out yeah. to people who are of a similar mindset or who are receptive to that it becomes almost like confirmation bias that if you if you lean towards conspiracy theories about the moon landing you'll get lots of information popping up on Facebook or Twitter or wherever uh, about the the yeah. falseness of the moon landing or the Kennedy assassination or the death of Princess Diana. And YouTube is terrible for that because you can type in how to boil an egg and you can watch that video. And within like five, if you click on the, uh, on the, the, the videos that are linked to that, if you click on one and then click on another, just going on what it suggests for you to listen to. I think within about five or six, seven, even uh, clicks, you, you're talking about conspiracy theories. And that's because, you're talking about algorithms and algorithms talk on um kind of uh averages you know they kind of what's what's more likely to be clicked and it's because so many people look at these videos that you know it thinks you want to look at it you know so that's why it leads you in that direction and it's quite scary it's really scary i think well, I, I, i'm trying to think of a good example if you type in on a on google there are other search agents but if you do a um a, a google search of 9-11 false okay. you will end up with 
hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of, of posts um, yeah. or potential sources of information that will confirm that. Some of them will be repeated. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's a market out there for conspiracies and there's oh, yeah. a market out there for the propaganda of hate and intolerance that um, has taken over from the mass rallies of the past, which you know is, is and, part of my interest. And like uh, you're talking about Auschwitz and things like that. These are lessons that we should have learned. You know, and we we kind of ignoring that. So, do you think it's a generational thing? Do you think it's something that we will always go back to, or do you, I don't know? Is it is there an inspiration there from those lessons? You know, it, it's I, I don't know if it's generational, um, because across the generations you'll find people who st- still buy into the rhetoric of hate, but you'll also find across generations people who passionately believe that we should learn the lessons of the past and that we should be more tolerant and understanding and and reaching out to those more vulnerable. Um, uh, is it generational? Probably not. I think uh, people have always been tribal, and that's that's an issue. And if, if you live in the strange world that I live in, which is constantly researching uh, the Holocaust and other gen- genocides, you'll find a repetition in the words used. The targets change, and yeah. the method of conveying a message might change, by and large, the language is the same. It's just a different target. So in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, for the Nazis of Germany, it was the Jews, it was the Roma, it was the Sinti, it was Bolshe- Bolsheviks, it was um, you know the French, the British, the Americans, but mainly those small uh, racial groups. Um, today, there'll be different targets, but the language is very much the same. Yeah, and I, the reason I, I, I kind of worded it like that is because... Up until recently, we didn't have access, apart from, unless you're going to go to a library and pull out a book, you didn't have access to all the, the history, and like these amazing pieces of text that you can find, uh, videos, archives. Now you can. You know, there's, you got, you got Netflix, for example. If you go onto Netflix, there are millions of documentaries you can, you can troll through, which are amazing. I've uh, recently just come off a phase of just watching World War, World War II uh, related documentaries, but also information. Like you said, Google, you can type in, World War Two, and you can find millions, literally millions of, of, of um, bits of media you can read through or look at. Uh, we didn't have that until recently. So now we can access that. You're kind of like, oh, that's how I feel about such and such now. You know, they felt that about Jews. I feel. And so, yeah, we can go back to that and act in the same sort of similar ways. And, and where um, the internet differs from the old libraries, um, and you've still got the, you know, the world's greatest libraries available on the internet. I'm... I'm currently in the latter stages of an MA in Second World War Studies, and I have access online to the biggest library in history. I can find documents written by anyone in any language. They'll be on there. Um, And if I want to find academic articles or books, they'll be within that great library. And I can look at all the sources that those academics have used to create the document that they've written. What a lot of people use the internet tend to do, unfortunately, is they just take it as read. So you read something on Google or on Facebook or on Twitter or on yeah. Instagram, Snapchat, and because it's there, it must be true. Uh, yeah. In the same yeah. way, the politicians of the past, because they've said it, it must be true. Because it's a headline in a newspaper, it must be true. And I don't wholly buy into this idea of fake news. There are elements of um, manipulation of news within the mainstream media, but I think it's too easy. to. If you start dismissing the press as fake news, you end up into the... Um, realms of authoritarian regimes where the press are denied the uh, ability to challenge those in power but there is an element that you know 
if you see it on a headline or in a, um, a social media blog or whatever, uh, because it's there, it must be true. Because a politician says it, it must be true. There was um, famous Nazi propagandist uh, Goebbels, who said as early as 1927 that in talking about not needing to provide proof in propaganda that Jesus didn't have to provide proof with the Sermon on the Mount. He merely had to say the words and he was believed. And some of the propagandists of the Nazi era and other eras um, didn't have to provide proof. People today don't have to provide proof. So you'll find uh, online and you'll find it with some politicians and elements of the press that they'll say things repeatedly and those will be be repeated by other people. And if they say them with conviction, they're believed. They must be true. Very few people challenge them. And people don't challenge the information that they access. So you can look at Wikipedia. Wikipedia um, would never be used as an academic source. No, because anybody can go and write anything. Yeah. I can create a Wikipedia and say that Daffy Duck was the fifth president of uh, of America or something. You know, you can write that. And sort someone of stuff. would believe it. Yeah, and someone would believe it. Um, so how do we combat this? How, how do we go ahead in this day and age? How do you stop this propaganda? This kind of uh, spread of hate—it's like wildfire, isn't it? How do we stop it? Is there is there a, is there a solution? <coughs> there's a, there's multiple approaches. One is get people to consider um, the nature of propaganda. In in one of my books on the tribalism and prejudice book, I looked at some of the research in the into the power of propaganda and who was more susceptible and receptive to propaganda. Propaganda when it's um, anti another group tends to look at the in-group and the out-group, the out-group or the other, and there'll be a minority group or some group uh, who are less powerful than the majority or more powerful group within the community. Propaganda tends to look at the difference with people and emphasise in that. It'll look at, say, for instance, with migrants, people coming into a country, that they present an economic threat or a symbolic threat. So the economic threat is that people are taking all our jobs, our housing, our hospital places, our schools, and uh, all those sort of things. The symbolic threat is that people may be trying to change our culture, our language, our way of life, our religion. Um, certain groups are more receptive to certain types of propaganda, and there's a research to back this up. Uh, by and large, and not entirely, people who are less well-educated, so people who haven't gone to college, haven't gone to university, don't have... Um, higher grade vocational skills so they're not professionally qualified tend to buy into the idea of economic threat fairly readily they'll accept it people who are better educated or within the professions and this doesn't cover all because it will apply to both tend not to buy into solely the economic threat but they will believe the idea of symbolic threat that people are going to change culture yeah, language yeah. Uh, way of life um both the less well-educated and uh, well-educated will buy into elements of both. The better-educated people, those who uh, are more willing to question, will question propaganda. They're receptive to an alternative opinion. There's a chunk of the population who won't question it at all, so they hear a message and they believe it. Um, Very little is going to change their their point of view. Um, So merely saying you're wrong um, won't work. Um, We have to change the way people think so get them from from almost from day one in school get children to question the information they're given by teachers to seek out sources of information when they're doing a history project when you know when they're 
studying a, a poet or a writer or an artist or um, some period in the past of Britain or Europe or anywhere else, get them to question sources, get them yeah. to access other sources, look at different different opinions, look at why someone is conveying a message and whether they may have an agenda and what their agenda is. Um, when they hear a message that sounds appealing, consider whether there are alternative messages and, and try and balance them out. So for me, I think part of the battle is getting people to question, but also getting people to look at the past. Because if we don't learn from the past, we're destined to repeat yeah, the lessons yeah. uh, or destined to repeat the mistakes. Um, and we can see it repeatedly in history where those same patterns happen again and again and again. Yeah. And we look and think, how did that happen again? It's because people didn't learn from the past. It reminds me of a jack-in-the-box. You know, ding a ding a ding a ding a ding a ding a ding yeah. He keeps doing that, and eventually the cans are going to go, bam! You know, and that's that's uh, that's what happens when uh, when people crack. They kind of, That's re- when revolutions begin, and it's when wars begin. Um, so look, you're an author. Um, how did how did it happen? How did how did you become an author? What what made you suddenly click and go? I want to write books. What happened there? It, it started with one book. It started with the book on Asher's Birkenau, which I don't know if we'll talk about that in more detail. We can do, yeah. 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 Um, but that became a work of passion for me. It was it was almost a madness. I was writing till one, two in the morning, and then going to work the next day. I was getting oh, right. up at five in the morning because words would occur to me that I had to write down the passion behind that book came from visiting Auschwitz Birkenau on a number of occasions from meeting survivors of the camp and survivors of other camps within the uh, Nazi regime and the Holocaust um, the friendship with the grandson of the commandant of Auschwitz being almost obsessively preoccupied with trying to make sure the lessons of the past were learned and when I wrote it being aware that too obviously in this country and in Europe um, and elsewhere in America and Australia, the the rhetoric of hate was getting some traction. It was there was some popularity some to some of the rhetoric of hate. So for me, it became um, almost an obsessive need that I had to write this book. That I had to write in a non-academic way that would be accessible to people who didn't know much about the subject about the history of Nazism, about the history of Auschwitz, about the history of some of the people who were involved in the camp. Um, is it, is it, do you go full in on it? Do you go like with the details? Of Some detail. I've, I've deliberately not put any, any pictures of, of death in there yeah. uh, or any black and white pictures at all. The, the pictures are black and white, but they're not old black and white <laughs> pictures. Um, because all the research shows that that, that actually has a, a negative impact particularly on a younger audience if you do lectures and the holocaust the guidelines from the international holocaust remembrance alliance are fairly clear avoid pictures of death uh, because a younger audience particularly will just see the dead bodies and naked bodies and they won't hear anything else is going on so i've not gone into huge details of gore but there are some details there and certainly some of the survivor accounts talk of the horror of their experiences of what happened to them and and what they witnessed but i've looked also at some of the post-war experiments that tried to understand how people behaved in that way. You know, the Stanford Prison Experiment, where students at Stanford University were allocated roles as prison officers and, and, and inmates, and within days they had to stop the experiment because the, the students who were uh, prison staff, the warders, were brutalising the inmates, and the inmates were totally subjugated and broken. 
Wow. They had stopped the experiment within days, the Milgram experiment, where um, participants were convinced that they were safely electrocuting someone on the other side of a screen. So they'd ask this person questions, and if they gave a wrong answer, they pressed a button, button or pulled a lever that supposedly fired so many volts through that person. Wow. Um, there was no electricity being passed. Ultimately, some of those participants were passing deadly doses of electricity through the person they believed was the other side of the screen because they were told it was okay. Um, so that normalizing of, of, of harm. Rationalizing the, what, what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, there, was we, a, yeah. there was the um, a fairly famous experiment by a, a, um, a grade school teacher in the United States in the late 1960s, uh, Jane Elliott, who separated her children into brown eyes and blue eyes. Um, so the blue-eyed children were told that they were the cleverest. They were the ones most likely to succeed. They were the ones who would achieve and do well. The brown-eyed children were told um, that they were life's failures. It was preordained because of the colour of their eyes. Um, within a couple of days, she changed that and said, oh, no, actually, I've got it wrong. It's the brown-eyed children who will be successful. What she noticed with those children during the period that they were told that their destiny was success or failure, they became that person they became bold and upright more and, confident, yeah, yeah, or yeah. they became subdued and and, and cowed by that oh i guess it's the factories for me then for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so part, part of the reason for writing the auschwitz book was to look at that and look at attitudes to to refugees and migrants and people fleeing war and how they're perceived today and how some of the language of the past is used to describe them yeah. you know vermin rats infestations all those horrible dehumanizing i hated it with all this stuff of libya uh and when they were describing um the people fleeing the country there in syria from syria through to libya and then through into italy and they they described it as as like that it was almost like they're they're getting closer Hmm. they're getting closer oh they're at calais now and yeah it's a language that's designed to kind of create panic in people yeah and well it's it's the language it's the language of hate it's the rhetoric of hate it it's that dehumanizing. It's it's awful, and particularly when you look at what people are fleeing. They're either fleeing horrible social circumstances that we can't comprehend in this country. We're we're pretty comfortable in this country. There are very few people who are absolutely destitute in this country. Some are, and that needs to be addressed. But by and large, most of us have got a roof over our head, and we've got some means of funding. Well, to there aren't there aren't drum, uh, bombs dropping on our head. Yeah. That's for sure. I mean. There, there are a few issues with uh, outreach in, 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 you know, across the whole country, but we've seen it more in Shrewsbury mm. as well. Um, but like you said, you're not getting uh, artillery fired at you. You know, you're not getting murdered in the street because of the color of your skin mm. or, you know, what kind of God you follow. Uh, so yes, uh, in the UK, we are kind of lucky. We are lucky. We are lucky. Um, and that's what people want. They want they want sort of freedom. They want to be able to move around and, and live, live normal lives without being fired at. Mm. Um, is this something that you always wanted to do then? This this the life of an author. When you were younger, what did, what did you want to do when you were older? Was this something you wanted to do? Uh, I, no, it wasn't. Um, I, I I had no great aspirations as a youngster. I, I was a fairly typical old secondary modern school boy. Um, the, you know, I'd failed my 11 plus, went to secondary modern school, uh, quietly planned Which away. school did you go to? Go I school went to Bass Church, so I was 
on it's now the Corbett School. Okay. Um, so on the outskirts of Shrewsbury, well, village three four miles away from Shrewsbury. Okay. And I, I was a standard secondary modern school boy. I wasn't a high flyer. I wasn't overly successful. I did okay. I got a few CSEs. Um, no one, I think, when I went to school, went to university. Um, you can name two or three people yeah. within the five-year period who went to university. It just wasn't the thing that happened in the mid-70s. Um, we had expectations when we left school. You either went straight into work or you might go to college. So I went to uh, what was Shrewsbury Tech, it's now SCAT, um, to do engineering qualifications for some bizarre reason because I had no acumen for mechanics or engineering so i used to hear when i was in school and that was like uh cutting 2001 it was like oh you need a trade yeah. <laughs> you need to be a plumber go and be well, a plumber. I, had, I had great plans to join the navy and I, i'd i'd worked out that if i got um so many o levels and other qualifications i could go in as an officer cadet so that to me was you know a, a fast track to a bit more money and a bit more of a, a comfortable career um, and they upped the requirements. So I did my time at tech and they upped the requirements, which meant going back for another year. And I, I wanted to earn money. So I, I was a laborer for a year. Um, yeah. Backbreaking physical yakka that yeah. nearly killed me Putting every day. Sand in sandbags. Yeah. Quicker, quicker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I fell into nursing. So in 1979, uh, I still, I'm not quite sure how I fell into it, but I did. Uh, I was, I worked in the casualty department at the Royal Shrewsbury Hospital that was the only casualty department for the whole county. At the time, so everyone in Shropshire who needed A and E care came in there. Uh, did that for a few months. So I was a general nursing student for a while. Um, did a stint in mental health as a placement and fell in love with it. Yeah. Ended up leaving one it's training, work. uh, working in mental health care, and did so for thirty-five years from then on. And I, I work in support. I work around support, and um, I, I realise that you do need a certain a lot of empathy to do a job like, especially with mental health. You know, you, you, you're you working with so many difficult situations that a lot of people would run a mile from. And what I get from you writing about Auschwitz um, is that you've listened to the victims of this um, and you've that, that kind of empathy, that drive that makes you do what you what you do did as a living makes you want to understand them a bit more and take their word and kind of spread 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 the word and say, look, these people, look, they went for a terrible thing. Is that right? Is that, is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um yeah, that say with Auschwitz and the other camps from that period, there are very few survivors left now. Um, we're, I we're imagine. Lu- yeah, we're lucky that there are some still around can give their account. And I've been blessed to to meet many survivors and you know to have a close friendship with some. You know, there there are a few greater privileges in this world yeah. than than to sit down with a survivor of Auschwitz uh, as a friend. I bet they've got some and, amazing oh, stories to tell. You know, and and some of them are well, all of them are beyond comprehension. You know what what they experienced and saw and witnessed, um, very few people today would be able to comprehend. And I'm not, you know, on a podcast, I'm not going to go into details and some of the private conversations I've had uh, with people of their experiences because these conversations may be listened to at breakfast time or by children and some of them are too distressing, but they're beyond comprehension. Um, And when you hear those stories, anyone who writes about Auschwitz, and I'm blessed to know other people who've written about the Holocaust, it becomes a duty where all of us have a duty to history we all have a duty to make it right but if you've got an opportunity to write you can use that to exercise your duty to help tell their story to make sure their story continues yeah if you've got an opportunity to speak to anyone it's you you exercising your duty um to share their story 
um, orally rather than just in the written word. And to put it into comprehension what they actually went through yeah. as well. Because you can write there and you can sit there and write, they had a terrible time. But that that just that doesn't explain anything, does it really? No. So like we would, like I was asking about, do you go into detail? You kind of have to. Yeah. I expect in some regards. Um, and so how did this happen then? So you, you spoke to, you spoke to, um, some survivors from Auschwitz and you decided to write a book. What did you do? What was the process then? Did you have to research, go places? How, how did it all begin? I'd been researching for years anyway. Yeah. So a lot of the information I needed. Because it was interesting for you. Yeah. I already had that information and it was a case of knitting it together in book format. So with the Auschwitz book, from the moment I started writing it, I, I knew where I was going with it. When I did the the introduction, I did it as um, you know a, a personal perspective from you know thirty seven years ago when I was first nursing in mental health care. When amongst the long stay patients we had in in Shelton Hospital were survivors of the war in Europe. There were Eastern Europeans there, and amongst them were survivors of Nazi camps. Uh, we even had patients with tattoos on their arm. But they were classed just long-stay, chronically mentally ill people um, who at the time were probably about the age I am now. But to me, as a 19, 20-year-old, they were ancient. Um, so I, you know, that was part of my initial um, first 20 pages of the book was reflecting on that. Um, and I knew where I was going with it. it that, that book, in some ways, was easy to write because the structure was always there in my head. Yeah, um, yeah. I knew I had uh, my own obligation to history to put something in writing. I knew it was never going to be uh, the greatest seller in history, but at least I would have done my best. You've, got your, you've, you've said what you wanted to say. Yeah, yeah. You've got it off your chest. Uh, I think, uh, I, think that, I mean, like, I've done the thing before where, I mean, I've put it to one side, but I did it when I, as, soon as, I, as soon as I reached my late 20s. I was like, I'm going to write a book. And I wrote the synopsis for it and I, I researched it and then I put it to one side because I just wasn't brave enough to sit there and do it, you know, go for the hours and hours of writing and the research and I couldn't do it. So, I mean, hats off to you for doing that. Um... Hey guys, how's it going? I thought this would be a great opportunity to tell you about an event that's happening in Shrewsbury in the next few days. On the 6th of November, there's a treasure hunt that's running through Shrewsbury. What a great way to get out and uh, explore your town. This is being run by Sarah Hopper from the Ferndale Bed and Breakfast. You can find the activity sheet online if you go to www.ferndaleshrewsbury.co.uk forward slash Shrewsbury dash treasure dash hunt. You can find the activity sheet there. It's basically a run of words with some of the words missing and the only way to find the answers to those words is to go on the hunt and find out the answers there's a message here from sarah that says you can do it for fun or send me the answers for a chance to win four 10 pin bowling tickets so for a chance to win you and your family a day out to 10 pin bowling why not take part in this and even if you don't win the main prize you're also the winner because you get to walk around this great town good luck sarah with this event it sounds fantastic and i hope you guys enjoy it and congratulations to the winner in advance you know i'd love to hear who wins it maybe we can get a picture of them put them on the uh, on the shrewsbury biscuit facebook page well thanks for that guys and back on with the show so so how's it going with these books like how are they doing I, I they're, they're doing okay um i was lucky it took me a, a fair while to get a publisher and anyone who's tried to get a book published will know it's that hard. that's a bit of a journey. 
the getting the publisher actually was a bizarre um, completion of a, a weird circle that with Rainer Hurst, who's obviously the grandson of the Commandant of Auschwitz, we were together in contact with a man called Ben Lesser, who wrote the foreword to the book that Rainer and I uh, did together. Now, ben Lesser is a, a Polish Jew from Krakow who survived Auschwitz. Um, ben and Rainer are friends, so Ben has dedicated years to educating about the past. He discovered Rainer, the grandson of the Commandant, was... Um, doing the same work and they become close friends so we had this weird connection between the grandson and the commandant and the survivor of the camp that yeah uh, his, his grandson's grandfather had, um, had run ben's daughter put us in contact with another man um uh, an entrepreneur in las vegas who put us in contact with another man who's a publisher in america and the the entrepreneur and the publisher all have a jewish history and some link to the holocaust there's this weird circle from grandson to survivor to others who've been linked to the Holocaust that put us in contact with the publisher. Um, they agreed to publish all the books that I've written, um, but it's the American model is very much digital rather than paper, although the book's available on print-on-demand. Uh, the American market is mainly e-books. They're doing okay. The last I'd heard, within the first 10 months, in excess of 8,000 books have been sold, which is okay. For a first-time author, as a creator, you just want people to enjoy the thing yeah. that you've made. If you, if, I mean, for me, making a podcast for the, this podcast, for example, if we uh, entertain or people enjoy, it, say a dozen people enjoy it, I'm happy, mm. you know, because um, you know that's the goal, isn't it? It doesn't. I don't need a million people to listen to this podcast. As long as, as long as the people that do enjoy it, you know, have you had good feedback from the books? Have people wrote to you and yeah, said yeah. they enjoyed it? It's been nice. Um, the nicest feedback has been from survivors. Yeah, um, uh, I'm, I'm blessed with um, one survivor in particular, and I won't embarrass her by naming her on here. But she's had copies of all three books, and her feedback has been wonderful. and And that's that's so rewarding. Um, writing books, uh, you know, same as doing a podcast. Uh, I think very few people are going to get financially comfortable from writing books. I've, you know, although these have sold. A reasonable amount. The income for me has been negligible. Digital books don't make money for authors, um, but it's nice to know that people have taken the time to purchase them and and read them. The survivor who I've not named has done talks around the world, and she'll often say that if she talks to a hundred people, if ten of those hundred go away having listened and thinking and, and continued to think about the content of the talk. She's achieved a result. Yeah. And for me, you know, if 8,000 copies have been sold and only 80 of those have made people change their mindset or made them think or made them research further, then that's a result for me. It makes it worth it. I mean, like there's, there's previous shows that I've worked on and, you know, you look at the figures and you're like, oh, okay, well, at least I've tried. But then you get a letter for it or a message or an email or something that somebody's thanking you. For, for, for you making their day a bit better and you, you're really humbled by it. You're like, oh, well, let's carry on doing it then because it makes it worse. It, and with publishers, it's, it is difficult because when, uh, when I was writing the, my book, I was so cocksure. I was kind of like, yes, I've got an amazing idea. People are going to want to buy it off me. So I was ringing up publishers, emailing people and uh, they got back and they were like, yeah, so that's going to be £2,500. And I was like, what? <laughs> you want me to pay you for my idea? And that kind of threw me a bit. So, you know, that that that, that was kind of scary. 
Um, so what 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 do you, what have you got on the pipeline at the moment? Are you writing stuff at the moment? The well, pipeline. I'm not writing any more books at the minute. I'm when I retired in 2016 from nursing. Yeah. I have to say I was lucky that I, I could take early retirement because of my, my status as a mental health nurse. Yeah. Um, that was almost immediately followed by starting an MA. So I'm coming to the end of that, and I'm sort of up to my eyeballs and dissertations. I'm doing some work um, on an event called the Holodomor, which very few people know about. It was a um, it's classed as a genocide of the peasant population of Ukraine in 1932, 1933. Okay. How, how do you say that? What's it called? The Holodomor, H-O-L-O-D-O-M-O-R. Okay. Um, and it's from Ukrainian. It means terror hunger, I think. Okay. Um, so it sounds like Holocaust, but it's it's a different linguistic route. Um, it was a, it was a, an enforced famine on the peasant population of Ukraine. Some four million people died. I remember hearing in about two this. Years. Terrible, yeah. it, it, it got very little publicity because it was of the Soviet regime. Just history was yeah. was hidden. Um, I'm working on that a bit in part. I've got a. I've been honoured to be asked to give a talk at Coventry Cathedral in November at Fantastic. an event that's been organised by the Ukrainian community. So. Um, the rabbi of a synagogue that I go to occasionally was contacted by the chief rabbi who was seeking a speaker to help these people at this event. And I, my name got put forward. I sent some stuff to the organisers and they said, yes, thank you very much. Uh, please do that. And I thought to do justice to that speech, and it might only be a 10, 15 minute speech uh, in a bigger event, I at least had to research the hello to more. So I've been doing quite a bit on that. Whether more will come of that research, I don't know. I think I'll my main focus will be do the speech uh, and then focus on the dissertation. And from the dissertation, there might be a, another book comes from that. How do you how do you do that though? How do you how do you go into a talk? So like you you're about to speak to say 100, 200 people, and uh, you go right genocide, 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 and go. How do you do that? Do you have to get yourself into the mindset, or does it just become natural for you? I'm lucky. I'm I'm not by nature greatly self confident. I've managed to taught myself into being confident in certain settings <laughs> this is a familiar story <laughs> um yeah in, in part my old job um the last 22 years of the job i had to give evidence in court virtually every day so i had to stand up in front of magistrates and yeah. judges and yeah. and give them information about people they were dealing with to help them with the decision making process anyone who's even sat in a court just to observe will find the experience fairly nerve-wracking if you've got to stand up and talk it's terrifying and i learned early on that I was talking gibberish to the magistrates and judges because uh, I really didn't know the rules. I had to learn the rules and then I became confident in what I was doing. A sideline of my nursing career was an educational role that, uh, with colleagues, um, often and sometimes on my own, standing in front of groups of people to teach about certain subjects li linked to my work or that were relevant to their clinical role. There's a, a way of you know, almost building up confidence if you do that often enough it becomes doable so talking about genocide in front of a group of people uh, is doable because i i hopefully turn up with an, some elements of knowledge that that audience doesn't have and i'm there to impart yeah. that knowledge and share it and 
make it a useful experience for them, whether it's for 10 minutes, an hour, whether it's... And I suppose they, they've uh, they've looked at the posters on the door before they come in and they know what's coming. So they're not going to be like, oh, that's horrific. Like yeah. they know what's coming. They know what's, So that, that kind of helps, I suppose. Um, and we were talking before we recorded uh, about uh, footsteps. Uh, what's, yeah. what's this? What's, what is footsteps? What is footsteps? Footsteps at the minute primarily is a Facebook page and a website. So the website, www.footstepsonline.com. That's about the only one I can remember. Um, we, myself and Ryan Hurst, the grandson of the commandant, and others created footsteps in late 2014. So in, in part, it was... Um, in readiness for us all attending Auschwitz for the 70th anniversary of the liberation of the camp. The idea of footsteps is to remember the footsteps of people who walked suffering and death um, at the hands of the Nazis, particularly in Auschwitz, but in other camps. Um, so we use footsteps particularly to remember their where their feet had been, but also um, to ensure that we remember the past and learn the lessons from the past. So challenging hate today, um, Speaking for the oppressed, uh, remembering other genocides that have been acknowledged, genocides that have yet to be acknowledged, because there are genocides going on now that the United Nations hasn't really got a handle on in Myanmar. Um, Myanmar, yeah. yeah. Ongoing problems with ISIS in areas of uh, Iraq and Syria, the problems in Syria with the Assad regime uh, and the, the Russian support will, I suspect, at some point be viewed as, as genocidal. So, you know, there there are events happening around the world today that need to be acknowledged and remembered. And what we sought to do with Footsteps was just to provide a platform where we could share information, where we could encourage people to think and where it would be a safe place for people of a similar mindset to to visit a page, visit a website and find sources of information, not just about the people who are involved with Footsteps um, and what we're doing, um, but also... Our, our thinking and thoughts on some of the issues around the world. So you gather some? Do you gather quite a few crowds for that? Then is it quite a big, popular thing? It's it's it's, it's not huge. Um, we we one of the difficulties with footsteps is that the main people involved with it, uh, myself in England, Reiner in Germany, um, friend Simona in, in the Netherlands, uh, another woman Inga in Germany. So we're we're spread across um, three countries, and and that causes geographical difficulties the main focus has always been for people who visit the the website and the page has been ryan hearse um understandably because of who he is yeah. and his background and he's you know certainly in continental europe is already well known yeah. as a person who, who openly challenges hate so so do you encourage people to go there that have like an interest in what these things are or is it more for for people that have been affected by this so if someone was say interested in trying to help um the situations that are going on in syria trying to understand it a bit more would you encourage people just to come and just poke their heads through and see what's going on or how does it work? we encourage people to contact us um and none of us will ever claim to have all the answers but we can most of us can access someone who may have answers it's a great place to have a mature conversation about it without without someone going oh get them all out you know yeah. or you know getting a bit irate uh, and, that, and that's that's i think that's exactly what we need we need we need a a, a, a format of, of talking about this about people losing their minds because they do mm. you know uh, we talked about that before um 
So, like, when you're, I mean, like I said, I'm a creator. Uh, it, it, people look at podcasts and like, who is a podcast? But there's a lot of writing, there's a lot of planning, and there's a lot of editing going involved. And sometimes it's great just to switch off the computer, turn off my phone, and just relax and do probably nothing. Sit on an Xbox or read a book or something. When you're researching for your NA and, and things like this, what do you like to do to relax? Is there anything that you, you prefer to do, hobbies or anything like that? I'm, I'm not a great hobby person. My hobby is always, uh, well, one of them has always been reading. Oh, there uh, you go. I, I, love, I love nonfiction <laughs> stuff. So so the MA um, fits in with a hobby as well. Um, but I have to switch off from there. You, you can't spend all day, you every burn day yourself, Even if it's a passion, you burn yeah, yourself yeah, out. All day, every day about genocide isn't isn't healthy. <laughs> um, simple things, uh, you know, I... Just, just relaxing, you know, walking with my dog, popping into town, enjoying Shrewsbury. You yeah. know, even if it's just for an hour, you know. I love uh, walking uh, around Shrewsbury. Walking Shrewsbury. It. It's, it's therapeutic, going to Attingham Park, yeah. uh, walking along the River Seven, walking around the quarry. Um, the quarry is one of the best places to go, I think, to wind down. Unless you're dragging a, along a, a three-year-old who's learning to ride a bike and likes to likes to complain about everything. <laughs> Even then, it's fun. Been there, been there. <laughs> You've got to turn the pedals round and round, son, round and round, keep going, and then stop. No. <laughs> yeah, it's quite fun. Um, yeah, it, it's great just to be able to get out uh, and just to think about anything but writing anything about a holocaust or in my case podcasts um and i've always got a bunch of cards as well do you want to come on my podcast you know <laughs> in case i see someone and um, i'll tell you what right you've got a list of books here let's let's give your books a plug let's <coughs> give people a name to these books so that if they do want to go and check them out you can i've just looked as well they're on amazon if you want to download them on digital they are that's right yeah they're, they're yeah, available digital or print on demand. Yeah, um, yeah. The the price I have to say with the print on demand was set by the publishers, not me. So I, um, probably more than I would charge. But if you've if people have got access to Kindle, you, potentially you can get them for free, depending on yeah. whether you got Kindle Unlimited. Yeah. So there are three books. The first one, Auschwitz Birkenau: From Hell to Hope, and Hope is followed by a question mark, and that to me is integral uh, to the title. It's you know, do we have hope? Yeah, isn't yeah yeah. Um, and that's a non-academic look at the history of Auschwitz, the Holocaust, the people involved, some survivor accounts, some of the post-war experiments, and then looking at some of the attitudes to uh, minority groups today with that question mark of um, hope. So you don't, you don't need a degree in, in diplomacy to be able to read it? You no, can just no, no. pick it up, read it? And it, it was aimed, from the moment I wrote it, at mainly at people who may have limited knowledge on the subject. So it wasn't you know, in-depth, heavy-duty academic book. It was, you know, let's just get the basics out there so as you can understand and grasp the reality of what went on, but yeah. also give food for thought on some of the broader issues post-Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. So that's the first one. The second one I wrote um, last year, uh, Tribalism and Prejudice, the far right and lessons from history, um, is looking at the rise of populist nationalism, the far right, um, to a degree referring to um, the Holocaust and, and the genocide in Bosnia for uh, comparative purposes of you know the attitudes that prevailed in the Holocaust yeah. and in Bosnia and looking at um, who's susceptible, who's receptive to uh, far-right propaganda and far-left propaganda. You know, bo- both extremes can be uh, fairly intolerant and what, if anything, we can do to try and challenge yeah. that. So it doesn't claim to have all the answers. It certainly raises a lot of questions and the idea of the book was to inform people and empower them to look at... And provoke them into thinking about these things as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, yeah. So hopefully that'll do that job. Uh, and the third one is it's more of a booklet. Um, it's called A Kinship of Purpose, and it's written jointly by myself and Rhina Hurst. And when we wrote that, um, we, we saw it primarily as almost like a manual of tolerance. So it's not, not academic. It's not heavy duty. It's looking at how all of us are empowered to challenge hate, to be a voice in the crowd that can make a difference. Um, and we're blessed with that book to have a wonderful forward from Ben Lesser, who I mentioned earlier, who survived Auschwitz. Um, with the Auschwitz book, I'm also blessed to have a wonderful forward from Kitty Hart Moxon, who I encourage anyone to research her online. She is one of the uh, finest survivors of the Holocaust, who has dedicated the best part of 60 years to educating about the Holocaust and making sure that lessons are learned. Um, I, I like to torture myself with movies every now and again, uh, you know, watch a real tearjerker. I, I am uh, a big girl when it comes to movies and I cry at everything. I've cried at Batman before. I kid you not. And I watched uh, The the Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Have you seen that movie? I've, I've seen it. It's... Um... It's a it's a film that serves a purpose. Historically, it's it's not great, yeah. Uh, and historians would advise against it. It's actually the I think it's been shown to be the most read book on the Holocaust for uh, people under the age of sixteen, and it's one of the most viewed films on the Holocaust. But it's it's uh, by virtue of the story is is untrue. It can't be true. It's fiction, but it's based on Auschwitz, yeah, and yeah. it's based on the Hearst family who had a villa on the outskirts of Auschwitz main camp, the boy in the camp wouldn't have been there. He'd have been dead within 45 minutes of arrival. So straight away it's fiction. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, children that young were killed soon after they arrived in the camp. Oh, terrible. Um, um, but it, it, it serves a purpose. It gets yeah. people to think. It, I'll tell you what, that's one of the first films, oh, not, not one of the first films, one of the, the few films, I should say, that, yes, it, it, made, it made me cry like a child at Christmas that had no toys or presents. Um, but it also, it made the room kind of shrink a size. Mm. I was kind of like, that's horrific. You know, they were playing that, that music and things. And I suppose, like you said, it had, it had a purpose. It had, it made you try and, it was designed to display the, the horrific nature of Auschwitz, I suppose, mm. uh, or of, uh, of this, this, this thing. Um, so yeah, guys, make sure you, you go and check out those books. Um, and if, if, you know, Simon does decide to write something new, we will definitely feature it again on a future show. Um, you know, thank you for coming on. It's been a really nice chat. We've done, oh, we've done 50 minutes already. I told you guys. I quick. would say as well, I mean, I've, I've never sought to make money out of, of these books. You know, if, if they sell, it's great. Uh, and I've never sought to make money out of whatever I do since. If I get a job, great. But for now, I'm enjoying retirement. But if people visit the, my author page on Facebook and contact me directly. If anyone yeah. is organizing an event where they want a speaker you know, for some tea and biscuits, I'll come and do it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to come along. That's fantastic. So if you guys would, I mean, where, where would, um, who, who, what kind of facility are we talking nursing homes? Would they be a good place to kind of go and speak to people? Churches maybe? I mean, what, where, where would you? Anyone who's, who's interested in the Holocaust, who's interested in, learning the lessons of the past. Um, so it could be any of those. As long as all I ask is, you know, if they've got a projector and somewhere I can plug a PowerPoint in yeah. um, and some space and a receptive audience, 
that can cope with an hour or so of me talking in front of a room, yeah. I'll, I'll come along. Yeah, we were in touch with a few people. I mean, there might be a few people listening to that might think that's a great idea. How, what do you think about your audience? Do you, do you find a lot of younger people coming to speak to you about this? Uh, do you speak to a few? I, I People who contact me are mixed. Um, I'm, I'm lucky and... I don't think it's generally reflective of people who are interested in the Holocaust that a lot of people who are contacting me are my age and a similar age. Um, if you talk to survivors of the Holocaust, they almost universally will say that the most difficult audience for them to reach are middle-aged and older. Yeah. Uh, because they know it all. Yeah. They're not oh, interested. Yeah, yeah. Their favourite audience is younger audiences, you know, from 16 upwards, who are receptive and ask questions and, and generally appear to genuinely have try more and, time as well yeah. <laughs> have more time available because i mean the middle-aged uh, <coughs> people they're kind of busy people you know they go run a house go to work come back and barely have time to watch a, an episode of their favorite show before they go to bed or something you know so i guess that kind of applies a lot to to learning about something you know so and, and also with younger people where it's it's not compulsory but it's on the curriculum and it should be in um KS3, I think, within the curriculum. But Holocaust education is taught in schools today. Um, where it's taught and how it's taught varies from school to school, but there are guidelines that are issued yeah, by, yeah. You know, in this country, by the Holocaust Educational Trust and others. Um, so younger people get Holocaust education. People 40 and above, by and large, didn't have Holocaust education in school. It wasn't a subject that was covered. Mm. Um, so younger people at the right age when they're being taught history are being taught about the Holocaust yeah. and they tend to be receptive when, you know, when they hear or see a survivor, it, it has a powerful impact from them. I think, I think during school you kind of revisit World War II uh, on quite a, a few occasions. I mean, I was walking around a, a primary school uh, just yesterday uh, looking for, for one for my little boy and the, the kids um possibly i think they were year five four or five they they were they were learning world war Two, and i guess it's this baby steps into the kind of what happened uh world war when i was in secondary school they go full in like this is what happened mm. and this is what the atrocities what humans are, are capable of um and yeah it's quite it's quite daunting when you're young but then it, it, like you said it it, it fuels an interest you might want to pursue that so that's great you can and as well you need to remember that like you said, there's only a few Holocaust survivors left, as well as people that fought in World War Two. You yeah. know, we, we're only going to have access to this this knowledge for you know for for a short amount of time. So we need to get there and get as much information as possible. So you, you're doing a good service, sir. Um, and uh, I wish you all the best with all the with all you know your books and your talks. This footsteps thing sounds amazing. I'd love to come to one some point. Some point, maybe we can pop our heads in and and take a look at it. You know. Um, I always, I'm going to, um, at the end of all of our shows, I'm going to ask our guests, um, what does Shrewsbury mean to you? It's it's home and it's where I can relax and feel safe um, and just enjoy. I, I recently had, we, we had a friend over from Holland and you don't always appreciate your own town until you give a tour. Yeah. Until you show the abundance of restaurants and cafes and that lovely cafe culture that we've got in the town of the very old buildings and the moderately old mm. buildings, the historically significant buildings, you know, the first, the basis for the first skyscraper in the world, wrapped in plastic and scaffolding on the on the edge of <laughs> Divington. You know, the castle, the black and white buildings, the beauty of the quarry and the dingle, um, the loop of the river, the views, the, the friendliness, the safety of the town. It's when you give a tour of the town that you realise just how special it is. Um, 
you, we think we know, but bring someone from out of town here and give them a tour. And I think anyone who's who's listening, who's from Shrewsbury, who knows a reasonable amount about their own town, get them to give a tour to someone else yeah. uh, and you see it. I, I occasionally bump into people in town who look lost. We all do. You'll see someone with a map who's come <laughs> from uh, another town or another country. And at times I've stopped and said, no, you're lost. You, you know where you're going. And uh, you're the fourth person who's asked me that. Yeah. And that, I think, speaks volumes about Shrewsbury, that you know, someone who's lost, by and large, can expect someone to come up and, and offer to help. Um, it's not a perfect town. It's got its problems. We mentioned you know, the, the awful and sad situation with homeless people in Shrewsbury, and I hope a compassionate and, and decent solution is found to that. So it's not a perfect town, um, yeah. and, you know, and it has its crime and you know, um, slightly rougher spots, the same as everywhere else, but it's, it's also... I find I find the town changing me as well. I mean, <laughs> this is a funny little story. I was I was waiting to go in a meeting. I was outside Windsor Post, uh, and uh, outside the parade, there was this elderly gentleman wandering around, and he was literally wandering around doing a U turn, coming back, wandering around doing a U turn, coming back. I was like, this guy's lost. I need to go and speak to him. So I was doing the thing, walking up. I was about to speak to him, and then he turned the device he was holding in his hand, and he was playing Pokemon Go. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, yes, you go, man. And he was, he was easily in his 80s. So I was like, yes, you go. Wonderful. He's getting his exercises going out and he's catching those Pokemon. So, uh, yeah. Um, thank you, Simon, for, for coming on the show. We'll, you know, if you've got something coming out soon, uh, we'll definitely come back on the show. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Show number one, interview number one for the for the Shrewsbury Biscuit. I, I feel greatly honoured. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's fun. Um, guys, if I could ask you just to give this episode a, a bit of a like and a share and get the good word out there, because this show is not just designed to to promote Shrewsbury. It's also to, to you know, let people of Shrewsbury listen to the warm stories about their town. Um, if you want to get in touch with me about any stories, uh, if you want to... Um, add anything to what we've talked about today you can find us on on in, on facebook instagram um and we're at um at the shrewsbury biscuit podcast on twitter we are at shrewsbury b1 because they wouldn't let us have the shrewsbury biscuit podcast it was too long so yeah make sure you get in touch with us in on social media give us a like and share and make sure you join us next week so thank you very much thank you simon thank you thank you very much bye for now